Hello, I'm Christopher Cassan, and this is Ireland's Edge. On today's episode, time to cop on. Can the world still avoid climate change catastrophe? In the past year, wildfires, floods and droughts have highlighted the perilous state of the global environment and the destabilising effects of man-made climate change. The last seven years are the warmest since modern records began, and unprecedented extreme weather has been wreaking havoc across the globe. World leaders agreed to more action at the COP26 summit in Glasgow last year, but is it all too little, too late? Dr Michael K. Dorsey is an energy investor and environmental scientist who has been prominent in global environmental politics since the Earth Summit at Rio de Janeiro in 1992. He has served as a director of the Sierra Club and is a member of the Club of Rome. Thanks to the support of the US Embassy, we were delighted to host him at Ireland's Edge in Dingle, where he spoke to Maureen Kelleher. Your bio is dizzying um, in terms of the number of domains, organizations, positions across academia, nonprofits, advocacy, government, regulatory, investing. Um, to such an extent that I thought there was a fantasist in there someplace, but I... Oh, a fabulous. A fabulous. But <laughs> it, um, that hasn't thus proved out thus far. But before all that, you grew up in Detroit, in Michigan, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, what did you take from that childhood that has imbued the values that have driven the choices that you've made? You know, I grew up um, in a household that was rooted in um, trade unionism, as you call it, over on this side of the Atlantic. Um, my grandmother uh, spent uh, the better part of a, of a half century uh, working for uh, Ford Motor Company. Uh, several relatives uh, were in other parts of the you know, automobile industry, uh, you know, at different factories. My grandfather was uh, on the sort of the bourgeois side of unionism. Uh, he was in the executive echelons of the United Auto Workers, um, was good friends with Walter Ruther uh, and others in that sort of universe. So really, um, I came out of a background, um, you know, a middle-class upbringing, but one that was committed to social justice uh, from a union uh, vantage point, uh, and one that was, I think, committed to recognizing the legacy uh, and the persistence and the problem of, of race and racism in America, um, you know, and one that uh, I think was also in, in really engaged, at least in my family, you know, in fighting that problem, uh, you know, fighting the problem of injustice, um, whether it be fighting for justice for workers, uh, whether it be, you know, supporting things. My grandmother was a, a perennial supporter year on year of the United Negro College Fund, um, so I think a, a background uh, rooted in um, social justice, rooted in uh, progressive values, uh, and with an eye towards, you know, uh, some might call it sticking it to the man, um, you know. So You brought that with you into that career spanning that I spoke about in the, envi in, in the environmental sphere. Um, you were at Rio in 1992. Uh, your career parallels everything that we have seen in the emerging climate change policy over those three decades. Um, as we contemplate where we are now, will you bring us back to Rio and say, tell me, why did it happen? What did we think 
we knew about the problem at that point? How did we frame it and diagnose? And what were we trying to achieve? So just if we situate ourselves back there before we come here. I mean, Rio is a point in time, right? It's a point in time that's related to a conference actually 20 years before it, the, the Stockholm Conference on the Human Environment, which was in 72. Um, and that's a, it was a moment in time where really um, we were beginning to think about uh, the possibility of global environmental problems uh, and the way in which those problems would you know, threaten ecosystems, uh, human health and well-being uh, completely at a planetary scale. Um, some of that came, you know, as a direct result of us going into space and, and stepping back and from the moon and from, you know, yeah. going out of Earth orbit and looking back and seeing that uh, we have a situation uh, or we could have a situation on this planet that could compromise, you know, lives and livelihoods. And so Rio comes at that moment as we were beginning to explore beyond the planet um, and beginning to collect data about problems like climate change and seeing, uh, you know, rising emissions. A lot of the theory about the climate problem actually predates not just the Rio meeting in 92 that we were at, and not even 72, but goes back 100 years earlier. Uh, that's sort of the foundational science. And some of that even, you know, 200 years before. Um, but we came into that process at Rio, uh, I think, with an awareness that uh, a planetary problem like the climate crisis could have some real dire implications for everybody on Earth if we didn't get out ahead of it. Uh, one of the things that we didn't have uh, in Rio, I think, and it came much later uh, in 92, the extent of climate denialism, which we now sort of take as a point of fact. Um, yeah. You know, we didn't have that uh, really then. Uh, we certainly had corporations um, trying to uh, slow walk processes at the United Nations, slow walk the Rio conference. Uh, there was a huge involvement of corporations in that conference. Um, and as they are now involved in climate negotiations currently. Um, but they also were, I think, jockeying to shift the blame away from themselves. You know, at Rio, it was quite clear that the the blame, at least, or the res responsible parties for uh, you know, the climate problem, at least, were corporations, and specifically oil companies. Uh, and oil companies obviously took umbrage with that. And they began to you know, roll out propaganda, roll out media. That basically puts us in the moment now where suddenly people want to do things individually, uh, do silly things like you know, offset their behavior and so forth. Uh, they want to do that in part, not because it's good or bad, but because corporations spent the last 20 really almost 30 years, convincing uh, folks that, hey, you're part of the problem, not us. Um, and so that's, that, that's something that's evolved since Rio. Um, it wasn't really there then. And so we've seen, I think what you're describing is some of what we've seen across the cap and trade, the market mechanism, the in effect, the purchasing of the ability to continue polluting and emitting. Um, there was then a, so we, we, we now have a process which, and Glasgow was still very much working out some of the market mechanisms attached to that. Um, we have another question then of how justice intersects with that question of markets. Um, do you think those are coming back, or the justice question is being recentered, or? 
Well, you know, you have to, when you look at UN processes, um, especially ones that begin to stand themselves up in the late 80s, early 90s, that's a time in the world where uh, the approach to the market, the faith and belief in markets as solutions uh, was becoming dominant, uh, becoming dominant certainly in a transatlantic context, uh, you know, on both yeah. sides of the Atlantic, you know, Reaganism and Thatcherism were, you know, championing, you know, market-based solutions. But you could have no other foolishness or idiocy uh, than uh, the belief, let alone the faith, that the market could solve a, f a problem that's fundamentally about injustice and or justice. You know, markets do one thing and they do one thing really well and doesn't always work that well. But th when it does happen, they deliver efficiencies ostensibly. What they don't do is check problems that are rooted in, you know, fundamental inefficiencies or really problems rooted in injustice or justice. Uh, if you have a problem like that, you know, a climate problem as it were, um, you've got to actually not rely on the market because it's not going to deliver uh, justice solutions. And, and indeed, actually, a justice solution is fundamentally one that can be inefficient, right? Um, we might w decide that you know, those that are least responsible for a problem, like climate change, the poorest of the poor, uh, black and brown folks, uh, folks on the margins of society, they're least responsible, but yet they need the most resources to get out ahead of the problem, to literally survive. Uh, so when you have that... You've got to move disproportionate amount of resources to them. You actually got to create an inefficient system. You've got to take resources from those that have been hoarding, uh, and then move those resources to those on the margins that need them. That's that sort of problem. It will never be solved. Cannot be solved by definition with a market approach. And so anybody that offers up that is really kind of a fool at best. Um, you know, uh, but that's what we see. Actually, we see it now in Glasgow. People trumpeting, you know, the ideas of, you know, market-based solutions. We see that in the Biden administration. We see that uh, with, you know, you know, former Secretary Kerry, now Special Envoy Kerry. We see that, you know, in the UK government, in the Chinese government. We see that across the world. But the reality is, is that we, we're never going to have a market-based solution uh, to check something that's as fundamental as, you know, the climate crisis, as it were, and really climate injustice or deliver climate justice. It's just not possible. And we also still don't have a full commitment to keeping fossil fuels in the ground. We absolutely don't. Uh, and, and again, you know, you, you know, that's a problem where you absolutely need, you know, minimally regulations. And then what we're seeing that in the absence of regulations to you know, deal with, you know, the continued utilization of fossil fuels, the continued pollution and threat that they represent to humanity and really to, you know, not just human beings, but, you know, ecosystems, you know, all sentient beings, really. We need aggressive agitation, and we're seeing that a little bit at a time. But that, that's really coming from pressure, pressure groups trying to deliver and trying to, you know, hold those companies accountable, trying to get them to, you know, not just, you know, dial out and keep, you know, fossil fuels in the ground, but also to get countries and nations and economies to pivot away from that, you know, fossil foolishness wholeheartedly and get into something that's new, something that's renewable, something that's green, whether it's you know, photovoltaic, solar, whether it's wind uh, and other renewable resources. So as you look at the what is on the table now in a sense of how you fight for a future which is cleaner, greener, fairer, let's go to the cleaner, greener hmm. for the moment. Uh, your belief is that the technologies are here. Absolutely. They are deployable. Yeah. The capital can follow 
and the fossil fuels should stay in the ground now? Well, you know, I agree with all of that. I think that the, the bigger challenge is more political. Um, we, you know, thankfully, we're confronting a problem in the case of climate change where we do have the, the technology. We don't have to come up and invent a new technology to get outside of this problem. Uh, but we've seen the resistance of you know companies, both the fossil fuel companies, and also resistance from governments to deploy the solution. You know, ramp up really you know and accelerate the deployment of renewable energies. We see governments moving really really slow, uh, and really in not just moving slow, but also oftentimes governments in cahoots with the with the problem. Uh, you know, oil companies as it were, uh, and so not you know getting us out ahead of the problem. So really, I would say the problem is more politics uh, than it is technology. I think in terms of capital deployment, we need to see much faster movement there. We've got some decent conservative math about how much money we need. You know, something about $100 billion a year is as a floor, not a ceiling, but a floor to move to those that are on the margins in the emerging markets in the developing world. Probably as we get out uh, through about mid-century, we need to move about uh, a thousand times that um, in terms of just capital, private capital, so you know, north of $100 trillion, uh, which is you know, almost a little bit more, a hair more than the current world uh, GDP, as it were. So we, we need a lot of capital and a lot of resources. We don't have that there yet. We have people talking about their interest to, to deploy that, but they're certainly not assembling uh, the low end of those numbers. Uh, and then what they are assembling, they aren't deploying fast enough. So it's, and that goes back to more political problems than so much you know, the presence of capital, the ability of capital and so forth. And you've stepped very directly into that arena as an investor in solar and also in the ESG investing yeah, space. Yeah, we, we have. We, we, me and a couple of colleagues have built uh, a small, small company, uh, a greenfield uh, solar a PV developer. We work at the utility scale, uh, been doing, you know, Primarily big projects in in the EU, but with a, an interest in movement into North America and into Africa as well, and, and then some partnerships in South South Asia and particularly in, in, in particularly in India. Um, but at the same time, along the way, we managed to stand up uh, an exchange traded fund called Change Finance, which we put money into that in 2017 and took it public um, with barely 20 million. And over the past few years, have grown that to north of 100 million. And what do you consider the success of that development? You know, I think for us, you know, at on the change finance side, uh, really the thesis there is that we could build an exchange traded fund that was completely fossil fuel free. Uh, we like to think of it as, uh, you know, the fortune, uh, you know, 500 without the 400 largest assholes. Um, you know, that's how we call it. Uh, you know, you can say those sorts of things on Wall Street. You know, those folks talk that way. So, yeah. And... Who is not in that? Who falls foul of that investing class that features in other well, ESG sustainability funds? You know, for us, you know, first and foremost, obviously, you know, it's, it's definitely, you know, the sort of nameplate fossil fuel companies, the Exxon Mobiles of the world, the Totals, the Shells, the BPs. But also, you know, a lot of funds say they're fossil fuel free. And when you look under the hood, you see... You don't see the nameplate companies, you know, the Exxons and so yeah. forth, but you sometimes see oil services and a lot of the, the, the folks that provide the stuff for oil activity. We don't have any of that in the fund. But we've also been keen to, you know, drill down on those that we have in the fund to look at other you know, sort of values, as it were. So recently we, we removed Tesla from our fund because they have 
have a long legacy and a, grow, a sort of growing rap sheet, as it were, of bad labor practices and so forth, mistreating their workers. So we took them out of the fund. Um, and thankfully, some folks paid attention to that, at least in the business press. So we're keen on not just having it be fossil fuel free as it is, but really trying to hold a co- a companies rather accountable to stand up to other values, other environmental values, other social values, other governance values. We put some of the normal screens as well as ones you might imagine, you know, human rights violations. We, we sort of remove companies that are doing that, um, you know, tobacco and those sort of older types of screens. But we were, we're really trying to hold companies accountable and, and really make the case that you can deliver returns and you can be profitable without being in a mess of bad, bad things, whether they be uh, environmentally negative, whether they be socially deleterious and so forth. And... Michael, when we were talking earlier about the, the fairer aspect of this and you talked about the need for government to come in on questions of inefficiency versus injustice, what do you believe are the key aspects that have to be fought for for this to be a fairer future? These technologies also have particular aspects of abundance to them um, in terms of very low marginal costs once your solar plant is in the ground. Um, We also know that there is, um, and I talked earlier this evening with John Mulholland about some of the environmental consequences of the petrochemical model that we've been on. But as we look for these rare minerals, there is a lot of environmental activity which will go on alongside those. If you look at that in the context of how this becomes a fairer uh, global community uh, as we walk into this future. What needs to be fought for, for that to happen? And how do you think that can be best achieved? We probably have to do the delivering of environmental justice, let us say, or call it climate justice, maybe in at least, you know, two or three ways, two or three big ways. The first one is, I think, you know, before we even get to sort of how you can do that on our business side and sort of the deployment of, you know, renewables, as it were, before we even get there, I think we have to think about uh, folks that are already being harmed uh, by the unfolding climate crisis. Uh, We have to think about, at the barest minimum, moving resources to them now. Some of it is just going to be in absolute cash. Uh, Some of it is going to be in terms of types of assistance. to help them adapt and mitigate the unfolding crisis. So we got to do much more of that and we got to do that much faster and we're not doing enough of that. And especially, you know, to those that are on the margins in the global north and, you know, in the United States and the EU and in Europe, uh, but also those that are on the margins in the developing world. You know, folks need, you know, they need resources to get out of this problem. You know, we saw in the U.S. just a few weeks ago, um, hurricane come you know, ashore in the south and sweep across the country. Um, and it actually did more catastrophic damages, not when it came ashore in the south of the U.S., in the Gulf, in, in Louisiana, Texas. Yeah. But it had, we saw a tremendous loss of life in, in, in New York and uh, in, in the sort of the northeast, as it were. And a lot of those folks, you know, about, about four or five dozen people lost their lives, most of whom were poor black and brown folks living in either substandard or even illegal uh, housing. Um, so those folks, right now, we know we've got to, you know, have more rules to protect folks like that. We've got to get more resources to them. So that I think that's the first maneuver there, getting just resources to those that are on the margins to protect them. Along the way, as we do that, we've also 
I think we've got to put certain kinds of controls. Right now, we know, and you know, I have the luxury of being in this business where uh, renewables are becoming cheaper and cheaper. They're now the, the cheapest way. You know, wind and solar, water are the cheapest ways to generate power. But we don't actually share the upsides of that uh, with those that are receiving the power. A lot of the, the, our profitability is, is pegged to the old fossil fuel generation approaches. Um, that's good for our bottom line. Uh, it's bad for, for folks that are on the end paying those, ex, you know, basically yeah. higher prices. They're not uh, sharing in the abundance of these technologies. Absolutely not. So we've got to come up with a system. And this is, I think, you know, you know, folks probably in my industry don't want to talk about this so much. But we've got to come up with a system that really uh, helps those that are paying a disproportionate amount, um, you know, to pay less. And we've got to, you know, that might be moving resources to them. That might be capping what uh, the bottom quintile, the bottom two quintiles of you know, society pay on energy, that might actually be even extending a right to energy. Because right now, you know, a lot of our projects, we, we see you know, 25, uh, 30% uh, ROI on some projects and some markets. Uh, could we do uh, with 20? Could we do with high teens? Absolutely. It, our project with those kind of returns uh, you know, of interest to our investors? Absolutely. So we could you know, basically deliver... Uh, probably free energy to a significant amount of society, still be profitable, still be in the money, uh, and then continue to provide the solution, in this case, you know, renewable energy, clean and green energy. So that, however, there are no regula regulations about that. Yeah. Uh, we need to, you know, move that conversation. That, that needs to, that's a political conversation that we can have and we should begin to have. How do you think that political conversation will come into being? You know, I think really it's only going to come from folks, you know, pushing and agitating for it. You know, you know, as a business person, look, you know, if I've got a project with high returns, um, you know, I might decide on my own, you know, to do something charitable with those, you know, those profits. But I have no obligation as a business person to do so. Uh, however, folks, you know, making demands of regulators, making demands of governments to impose rules on me uh, might see some breakthroughs. And I think we're going to see... I think we need to have that kind of pressure to get those breakthroughs because if you leave that only up to folks on the business side, you're not going to see that. There's no obligation to to share, you know, the basically, you know, our returns at all. And we can do that individually, but we need to be, uh, you know, there need to be rules about how to do that. You're a business person. You're also the treasurer of the Sunrise Movement, <laughs> and you were there at some of the precursors to its founding. Um, what and that that organization has had a seismic impact in terms of some of the legislation that we see passing through the US houses at the moment. What is the future for that and other organizations in terms of bringing some of these political conversations to bear, given some of the other nexus of politics and corporatism that we see? Yeah, and this is where I have to switch hats, you know, technically. You know, so I think, look, you know, Sunrise and, you know, many of our partner groups and peer groups, as it were, uh, are always going to have and demand the delivery of a really, really high bar of politicians. You know, right now, I would say it's, I think it's fair to say that the current U.S. administration is orienting, you know, the country and really, let's say, the multilateral conversation at the level of the U.N. in the right direction but it's not really doing it as aggressively as it could, could be done. Uh, you know, making commitment to 
you know, put more money into the Green Climate Fund and move more money to developing countries is important. But $100 billion isn't enough. You know, we need more like several trillion. So Sunrise is always going to keep that pressure on this administration, on subsequent administrations, as it has on past administrations. We, we set up Sunrise initially to keep pressure on the Obama administration, because when we looked at what he was doing, we recognized quite clearly and quite easily, really, that it wasn't enough. It wasn't fit for purpose. It wasn't fit for scale. Um, and we need really, you know, orders of magnitude more resources. You know, we need orders of magnitude more sort of pacing and delivering solutions. And Sunrise is always going to be about pushing and keeping up pressure. Uh, and that's really the job. I, mean, I think really it's about, you know, that street heat, keeping pressure on those in C-suites, whether they be in the White House, whether they be in corporate, uh, you know, sort of, you know, the, the, the heights of a corporation and so forth. And we're going to always keep doing that. If we go back to Rio, there was a carbon, shall we say, stream, which came out of Rio. There was also a biodiversity set of agreements. We have seen a lot less about that in the ensuing decades. We're beginning to catch up. What does that need to look like over the next decade? That's probably, um, it's a stalking horse of climate. You know, the, the climate conversation, the climate crisis, you know, dominates headlines. Uh, few people probably even n noticed that there was just a couple of weeks before Glasgow, there was the uh, the first portion of the biodiversity negotiations that took place in China and Kunming. Uh, contrastingly, the, the U.S. was quite critical of China and Russia and other countries for coming in virtually into the Glasgow meetings. Well, they did the same thing, uh, you know, at, at the biodiversity negotiations. The U.S. is not a party to that treaty at all. They haven't signed it. Um, you know, and there's no plans really of the current administration to actually sign it. So uh, we've got to ramp up, you know, on the U.S. side, just engagement in the process. You know, we, there should be a commitment to get into and sign the biodiversity treaty. That's not even really a big conversation in the U.S., unfortunately. And really even the resources that we put for biodiversity globally are paltry. You know, the, the Chinese, you know, put forward a, a nice sounding number, a billion yuan, you know, barely 200 million measly dollars. Um, into the process. Significant and important, again, oriented the right direction, but really probably, you know, depends on, you know, whose math you look at, about a thousand to 10,000 times short of what's really needed when you look at the, the UN numbers for that. So we really got to drastically increase our commitment and, you know, to, to tackle the, the biodiversity crisis, as it were, both on the US side, but also within the larger, you know, multilateral con conversation and context. Scope for much, much more agitation there. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Thank you for being with us. No, thank you. Thank you so much to Michael Dorsey for joining Warren Kelleher in Dingle. And you will be able to find a video of this interview on the Other Voices YouTube channel. On our next episode, I discuss the world of big data with constitutional lawyer David Kenny. We've seen in some ways, the shrinking of the state and the rising of the private company. And there's been uh, several developments of this. Facebook's so-called Supreme Court that adjudicates on free speech issues on Facebook is one really interesting example. Google being this adjudicator of the right to be forgotten is another. And this is the gradual privatization of what would have been public powers. To make sure that you don't miss that or any of our future episodes, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a South Wind Blows production, and I'm Christopher Kassan. Thank you for joining us, and I look forward to your company next time on Ireland's Edge.